this passage of scripture is a long one, so that's 30, almost 30 verses. And uh, just to explain something to you that I think can be helpful. Sometimes you hear the, uh, the term expository preaching. What is expository preaching? To exposit is to expose. And so what faithful preaching should do is take the, script, take the section of scripture that was read and expose God. That's what expository preaching is. Now, some people will say, well, expository preaching means you have to go through literally every single verse and unpack that. And to that I would say, no, that's what a commentary does. And it's not wrong to do that. So you have to preach the section of Scripture that you read that day. you got to give the sense of what God's heart is behind that section. So you, you could do that in a number of ways. You could preach an expository sermon on one verse. John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You could get up. You could read that text, that, ser- that verse, and you could, do, you could expose the truth of that text. One verse. You could also get up like I've done today and, and try to tackle what's the big theme. What's the big theme that, that God's, is behind God's heart in that whole section that Taylor just read? It's a little bit harder. Right? Because there's a lot in it. Couldn't you, weren't there some of those verses that made you scratch your head like, I got no idea what's going on there. That's how I felt this week. And how I still feel in some ways. But I'm going to try to give you the heart of this whole text. You could, though, you could get up and preach a sermon on the whole gospel of John. One sermon. You could try to capture the whole theme and flavor of the entire gospel in one sermon. If you were really ambitious, you could do that for the whole Bible. You could say this is the, this is the theme of the entire Bible and try to do it in 40 minutes. Challenging, but you could do it. Today we're looking at this section of scripture and I just want to alert you to the fact that I'm not going to be unpacking every single verse in this passage. I'm going to try to give us the the flavor of it. You can do that though in your own Bible study. You can can go in, research these things, dig them up, study it, pray over it, and may God use it in your heart. Okay? Thinking about Justin Bieber this week. You say, why? I hope most of you know who Justin Bieber is. I would think you do. Justin Bieber is successful in the world's eyes. I looked it up last night. He has 76 million followers on Spotify. He may, this changes... But he may be currently the most listened to artist in the world. When I looked it up earlier in the week, he had 72 million followers. Last night, he had 76 million followers. So he gained 4 million followers in a week. His mom was 18 when she had him. She raised him as a single mom. By 17, he had a million dollars by the time he was 17 years old. Wouldn't you love to have that? 
Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to have made a million dollars by the time you were 17? Oh, some of you are like, no, I don't know. Yes, you would. Everybody wants a million dollars. His net worth is $300 million. He's married to a supermodel. Biblically, he is very similar to the man of Ecclesiastes. If you want to read a confusing section of Scripture, read Ecclesiastes. It is the, the man who has tasted of everything that this life has to offer. Do you know the story? He finds that life is meaningless apart from someone, apart from something. Justin Bieber has had a lot that the world can offer. He's got what most of us are running after, money, possessions, fun, fame, freedom. On his recent album, though, he's written a couple songs that are very interesting. He's questioning, in this one particular song, the feelings of emptiness that he has inside. It says this in his song, We're in This Together. I've had everything in life that people strive for. Even that language of striving, that's Ecclesiastes. Striving. I've had everything in life that people strive for. Just to ask the question, what are we alive for? What you believe, what you agree with, what would you die for? Is there a reason? What is the meaning? What do we cry for? He's asking some important questions about what really satisfies the human heart. And he's, like many of us, have never been able to enjoy. He's enjoyed a lot of what the world has to offer, and yet he has the same question that a lot of us have. What are we alive for? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose? What would really satisfy me? My friend Tom uh, showed me a quote this week that I thought was very telling as well. It's from Jim Carrey. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. Everybody could get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they could see that it's not the answer. Well, if getting rich and famous and doing everything you ever dreamed of is not the answer, then what's the answer? What's the answer? If money and fame and being attractive and achieving your life goals doesn't satisfy, then what satisfies? The text that Taylor just read to us 
followed a miracle that Jesus had done. Last week we talked about him walking on water, but this, this section of Scripture where Jesus is teaching is an explanation of a miracle that he did prior to his walking on water. What was the miracle? Does anybody know? Feeding the 5,000. Somebody said it over here. This is an explanation of his miracle of feeding the 5,000. If you want to hear that sermon, which Isaac preached, it was a really good sermon. You can go on our BGC, Brandywine Grace podcast. You can listen to that sermon. If you want to listen to some thoughts on the miraculous, we, I commented on that last week. You can go onto our podcast as well and listen to those things. I'm not going to be unpacking that again. God doesn't want anyone to live a hopeless, meaningless existence. An empty, unsatisfied life is not God's intention for creatures, for his creation. The people in this chapter are asking the same questions that Justin Bieber is asking. They're asking the same questions that Jim Carrey is wrestling with. They're asking, if we're honest, the same questions that we're asking. Where do we find meaning? Where do we find satisfaction? Jesus wants to free them, and he wants to free you by providing the answer to that question. That's why he gave this bread of life discourse to rescue us from the emptiness of life. Why did Jesus give this discourse, this complicated, significant discourse, this teaching? Why did he do it? To rescue us from the emptiness of life apart from him. He gave this and presented himself as the answer for the needs of every human heart. This is why this passage is taught. Now, as we study this teaching that has some of the most important teaching in John's gospel on the significance of Jesus, two important themes emerge. So remember I told you, I'm trying to give you the the flavor. There's two important themes that emerge from the text that was just written. Just read, not written. Taylor didn't write it. John wrote it. (laughs) Two important themes. Here they are. Emptiness and satisfaction. Emptiness and satisfaction. These are the two important themes that have emerged from Jesus' teaching. When I talk about emptiness, I'm talking about what the human heart needs. When I talk about satisfaction, I'm talking about what is the answer to the needs of the human heart. You tracking with me? Emptiness, what the human heart needs. Satisfaction, what is the answer to the needs of the human heart. Now, let's set the context so that we can understand what Jesus is talking about. Jesus has become, at this point in John's telling of the gospel, wildly popular. Extremely popular. Crushing crowds constantly around him, performing miracles, and he sent We're going back a little bit, but he sent the disciples to Bethesda. There's green grass there. There's some peace and quiet there. He thought he could find some relaxation with his disciples. But when he got there, what had happened? 
The crowds had followed him there. And the crowds were even bigger than what, what we see being indicated in the scriptures. The scripture says that he, that he fed miraculously 5,000 men, which is indicative of the fact that there wasn't just men there. there. There were children there and women there as well. And so you could read this as it was the feeding, more likely, of the 15,000. So... They're all there following here. They following him. They 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 follow him to where he is. This big crowd is there. He responds. He's looking for some peace and rest. He responds by teaching them, ministering to them all day long. That ended in the miracle. And at the end of the day, everybody's tired. So he sends the disciples in his boat to cut across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, and he goes up into the mountains to pray. Last week we talked about the disciples having a hard time straining in the storm. Jesus comes walking to them across the stormy waves. You can listen to that sermon, following Jesus through the storms of life. Just go on to the podcast. When the disciples, though, and Jesus finally get to the other side where they believe they may have escaped the crowds for a while, they realize that the crowd had some boats too. So they get in their boats, get across the sea, and sometime the next day they find Jesus and they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? Which is to say, how'd you get here? How'd you get here so fast? And we only saw one boat leave. I wish that Jesus would have answered that question. He totally avoided that one. He didn't answer that question. We're going to talk about what he said to them. Why, though, had the crowd so passionately pursued Jesus? Why, why, had, why had they so wildly pursued them? It's because he had supplied them with material things of life. And this is what he says to them. They liked the idea of a guy who could fill the grocery cart of life and keep the material things coming and coming and coming and coming. We like a grocery cart filled to the brim without having to spend any money. But they failed to see the importance of the sign. Remember I told you last week, the miracles are never... Jesus didn't do that miracle just to satisfy the appetite of those 5,000 to 15,000 people that day, and that's it. He did it for a deeper reason. He did it. We're reading about it today because Jesus, because God wants us to see the deeper spiritual realities that accompany the sign. The sign always points to something. The miracles weren't just just miracles for that moment in time. They were signs that point to deeper spiritual realities. Jesus is teaching all of us, those that would listen, some deeper spiritual realities through the sign. But these people failed to see the importance of the sign. Will you fail to see the importance of the sign? Pray that the Spirit of God would open your eyes so that you don't fail to see the importance of the sign. 
They failed to realize that a man who could miraculously feed 5,000 was also able to meet the deepest spiritual need of their lives. So what does he teach them? Look at verse 26. Truly, truly, mark my words. Remember, we've been over that. He says it three times this, in this section as well. Mark my words. I say to you, you're seeking me not because... Okay, there's a, he tells them first why they're not seeking him. You, you're, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because, this is what I just tried to explain, because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's explaining to them why they are seeking him. You're seeking me because you want a full stomach. You're seeking me because you're materially motivated. That's what, under, that's what motivates a lot of people in their understanding of God and religion. We've, we, we follow God. We try to be obedient to God because we have this fear that if we don't, he'll take away this stuff that we have. Or we pursue him as long as we think he'll give us what we want. And Jesus continues in verse 27. He says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Now Jesus is beginning to reveal some deep spiritual realities that He wants everyone to see, and He's using bread as a metaphor. Why not chocolate? Why not beer? We'll get to that in a minute. He's using bread as a metaphor to show something. And what he's showing the people and all of us is the emptiness of our hearts. He's saying there's two kinds of bread. There's a physical bread that perishes or satisfies, you might say, temporarily... And there's also a spiritual bread that satisfies how long, church? Eternally. Saying, do not labor. Don't work for the food that, that only satisfies temporarily, but give your attention to that which satisfies eternally, this spiritual bread. Now this... I hope you understand, he is not making, this is not a teaching on the importance of work. This is not where you go for a, a, a sermon on the importance of getting up and, and being diligent to work. He's making spiritual connections here. Physical bread, physical material things. If you seek your satisfaction in the material things of this world, Jesus is saying those things will perish. But if you find your satisfaction in spiritual bread, then you will be satisfied eternally. I wonder how many of us have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and are satisfied eternally in him. Another way of saying that is something we like to say around here. Jesus plus nothing else equals what, church? Everything. So that means if you get Jesus and nothing else, you get everything. 
This is what he's saying. This is why he's saying this is so important. What would Another way of saying it is something he said in the Gospel of Matthew. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world? But what? Forfeited his soul. What gain would that be? What Jesus is doing here is he's trying to help us see the emptiness of the human heart apart from him so that you might find what actually would satisfy you. Everybody's looking for satisfaction. Justin Bieber, Jim Carrey, and every single one of us were looking for satisfaction in something. We were created that way. We were hardwired that way. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the answer for what truly satisfies. This is such an important lesson. The lesson that Jesus is teaching to those that have followed him across the sea and are getting this explanation of the bread of life miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, this is a crucial crucial lesson for every one of you who live in the zip code of Chester County, Pennsylvania. This is important for us. You think this is archaic? You think this is old? I don't know. This is applicable and, and, and very much so for every single one of us that live in this zip code, that live in the Downingtown Area School District that live in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Because Jesus is getting at something that all of us, if we're honest, are doing. We're running after the material things of this world. More so than a lot of other zip codes in America. We are those who run after the things of this world. And Jesus is saying those things won't ultimately satisfy. They only temporarily satisfy. They eventually perish. Do not misunderstand me. It's not wrong to have a nice car. It's not wrong to have a nice home. I'm not guilting us for living in Chester County. God has placed you here. Are you thankful to him for that and his provision in your life? What Jesus is saying is don't put your hope in those things. He's not saying don't enjoy the things that he's given to you. He's saying don't put your hope there because it's going to spoil. Because it's, gonna, it's got an expiration date. It's going to perish. The material things that we run after, they don't satisfy that void in the soul. That's what Justin Bieber is saying. Deep down, the new house, you know this to be true, the new house, the new car, the new membership, the daily Amazon delivery, the new relationship, the new flat screen TV, the home improvement project, the high doesn't last. You with me? I mean, I've been there. Have you been there? I can't wait to get this. Then you get it, and it's like, I always marvel. Like, I want a Porsche convertible, but I see people driving them. Some people have them. Maybe some of you have them. There's nothing wrong with having a Porsche. But the Porsche I know won't satisfy if I got it. It would, like, it would be my dream to have one, and then I'd get it, and I'd just drive it around like I do my old 1994 Honda Accord, which did die, by the way. It has served many a sermon illustration, but I can drive it no longer. 
It doesn't last. The satisfaction of temporal things doesn't last. Listen, I have two older boys, teenager and, and one in his 20s now. My wife will make an order on Instacart. Make like a $250 order. The order gets delivered. We bring it into the house in the afternoon. It could be like Saturday afternoon. And if both of them are there, they blow through that food so fast that when they open up the pantry like a couple hours later and they have the audacity to say this, there's no food in this house. There's nothing to eat. Could have fooled me. I just spent $250. Now, one of the things they're saying is there's nothing ready-made. There's, there's nothing to eat in this house that, would, that doesn't require actually mom cooking it for me or, or me doing some labor. But the point is, you can, you can bring in a whole truckload of food into my house, and by a few hours later, those boys will generally say, They'll stare into the pantry with kind of a dumb look on their face and say there's nothing to eat. When are we going food shopping? We are often similar. We look into the pantry of our lives and say there's no food in this house. It's the cry of the human heart. The good things we chase after, the things we work for to make us feel satisfied, they wear out so quickly and they're left wondering, there must be more. There must be something else. Jesus is getting at this theme of emptiness. He's trying to elevate our defective view of what life is all about. He's saying don't work for the stuff that only temporarily satisfies. And that's what so many of us drift into doing. We work, 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 work for something that temporarily satisfies. This group asks a question of him in verse 28. Look what they say. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They asked what work they could do to get the food that satisfies eternally. So Jesus helps them to see there's an emptiness. And then he says, physical bread isn't going to satisfy you eternally. You need spiritual bread. They say, hey, what work do we have to do? What work would that require in, for, in order for us to have that? That's the default of the human heart. What do I got to do to get it? You see, we're legalists at heart. We, what, do we have, what would it require for me to get God to give me bread that would eternally satisfy? What work would that require? Jesus answers verse 29. Here's the work. This is the work of God. What's he going to say? I could, we, could blow, we could have our minds blown here if we find something different than what I hope he says. This is the work of God. What is it, Jesus? Believe. No, no, I wanted something to do. I want to work for this. 
And I want to earn this. And I want that spiritual bread that you're talking about that's going to give me, that's going to satisfy me eternally. What do I have to do? And Jesus shocks them by telling them that the emptiness of the human heart won't be dealt with by the physical work they could do. The bread that eternally satisfies comes from belief. It comes through belief. What's another word that the Bible uses for that? Faith. Why did John write this gospel? That people would understand who Jesus is and then what, church? Believe in him. And then what? What do you get if you believe in him? Have life. It fits, right? It fits. This fits with the whole picture of John's gospel. Now imagine I invited you over for lunch after the service. And Amy's a really good cook, so, and the food was amazing. And it's sunny outside, and we sat on the deck, and we ate all the good stuff, like steak on the grill, a little wine with our meal, dessert. Think of your most favorite dessert. comes out. I mean, you're just sitting there feeling full, fat, and happy. Imagine as you got ready to go, you said to me, I don't have my wallet with me, you pulled out your wallet and said, this was amazing. What do we owe you for this? And I said, what are you talking about? You have to pay me. And then you said, hey, listen, we ain't no freeloaders around here. We pay for what we enjoy. We ain't taking something for nothing. What do we, what do we owe you? If you won't, if you won't tell me what I owe you, then here. And he throws a couple 20s or 60 bucks at me. How do you think I might feel at that? It would be embarrassing almost, wouldn't it? Just the mention of the payment would be an insult to those you're trying to be hospitable to. We go through life trying to pay for a free meal, insulting God in the process. That's why Jesus says in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. The bread of life that deeply satisfies, that eternally satisfies, is freely given, and we have to freely receive it. Have you done that? It comes through faith. We don't pay for it ourselves. Some of you know the tiring effort of straining in your own strength to live your life for Jesus, actually apart from Jesus. You can relate to the disciples last week. You're like straining at the oars. You know, the storm's blowing and you're rowing, 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 rowing. But Jesus is absent and you keep looking up and it's like, I row and row and row and I don't get anywhere. All I'm getting is tired. We work and we work and we sweat. We don't get anywhere. We're not fulfilled. We're not satisfied. You need to remember 
that the Christian life is all of grace. And this is what makes it different from every other major world religion. The work is not done by you in order to get the bread of life. The work is done by Jesus in order that you might receive the bread of life that he's offering. Aren't you thankful for that, church? You could never get to God on your own. You could never work hard enough to earn the bread of life that he freely is offering. God sent Jesus to come get us. Aren't you thankful that the work has been done by Jesus? Jesus accomplished the work on the cross in his life, death, and resurrection so that the empty void of your life could be filled by him. Well, they misunderstand Jesus, and then they do what's incredible. Like, I cannot believe this. They actually ask him for a miracle. This is the group that were part of the 5,000 that he fed yesterday. The audacity. Can you imagine? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're not interested in what you're talking about here. So we reference the Exodus. They reference the Exodus. They, they reference the wandering in the wilderness and how Moses, the, the leader, their spiritual father, and the leader of their forefathers, he fed us in Israel six days a week for 40 years from bread from heaven. What are you going to do, Jesus? What's the point? Miracles don't satisfy. If you're looking for one, it won't satisfy. A miracle from the day before wasn't enough because that day's over. I need a miracle today. God, if you can just, if I could just have another miracle, if you would just do something else for me today, forgetting what he's done for us already. And they move on to verse 34. After he makes this explanation, they say, Sir, give us this bread always. Now Jesus has them right where he wants them. Now he's going to tell them what he can do for them. This is the first of the great I am sayings in this gospel. We're going to read that Jesus says, I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. But look at what he says here, verse 35. And if you want to underline the main point of this text, underline this section, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus, I said, is trying to teach them two things. One is the emptiness of the human heart apart from him. Two, he's trying to teach them what would really satisfy. What will really satisfy? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm the one that satisfies. He who comes to me, never be hungry. He who believes in me, never be thirsty. I can satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart, and all you have to do is believe in me. All you have to do is trust me. All you have to do is follow me. Jesus says to the crowd, and he says to us, I offer myself freely to you. Will you freely receive me? Jesus is the answer to the needs of the human heart. He's the answer to the yearnings of every human heart that can only be fulfilled by Jesus. 
That's the fundamental and elemental role Jesus claims to fulfill, is to satisfy you for all of eternity. He's talking about satisfaction. He's saying that apart from him, nothing satisfies. We've talked about that being the problem. The best vacation has to be followed by another vacation. The best meal you've ever eaten still leaves you hungry. You could play, you're an athlete, you could play a record-setting game of your life, but you'd have to follow it up with another one. You can buy the best clothes, but then you look out of style when your kids look at the family photos. I know when I was wearing whatever I was wearing like 25 years ago, 30 years ago, dating Amy, that I know I looked good. I know I spent money. My kids think I look ridiculous. <laughs> Evidently, those clothes didn't stand the test of time. Evidently, that's style. Although some style, you know, styles are coming back. Like, well. <laughs> you can be like Justin Bieber. You can have everything in life that people strive for, but still feel this emptiness inside. C.S. Lewis said, I can't find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that's long enough. You can't find lasting satisfaction unless you turn to the one who says, I eternally satisfy. Jesus offers himself as the bread of life. It's a reference to Isaiah 55. Come, those of you who are hungry, right? Those, those that desire bread, those that are thirsty, come with no money, he says, and buy. And be satisfied. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 35. Now what does bread suggest? Just a couple comments on the band return. What does bread suggest? Well, one, I just want to make a couple points about bread. One is that bread is fundamental for life. Jesus is fundamental. Just like bread is fundamental, Jesus is fundamental. Bread, for Jesus' audience, was the primary source of nourishment, and it remains that way for most of the world. We go into Wegmans, we don't just have the bread aisle, like we're in there for hours, but most of the world, when you say bread, refers to daily sustenance. It's the basic few food universally. Caviar, cake, chocolate, craft beer are, few, are for the few. But bread is for everybody. Jesus is not the chocolate of life. Jesus is the bread of life. That means he's the universal savior. He meets the needs of every human heart. That's what bread suggests, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the bread of life means that he's the answer to the needs of the human heart. It means that Jesus came to rescue us from the emptiness of life. What do you think about that? Have you experienced Christ's rescuing power from life's emptiness? He invites you to receive it, that rescue today. What else does bread suggest? It suggests this realness. There's a realness to Christ, just like there's a realness to the bread we eat. James Boyce says this. Is he as real to you spiritually as something you can taste or handle? Is Jesus as real to you as something that you can taste and handle? 
Is he as much a part of you as what you eat? James boy says, don't think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say this because although he is obviously far more real and far more useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people, he is much less. What kinds of things have you been looking for to bring you satisfaction? And how is Jesus inviting you to see that he more deeply satisfies? He more eternally satisfies? What else does bread suggest? It suggests this idea of daily necessity. You need bread every day. How often are we taking in Christ? How do we take in Christ? We, we eat of his word. Are you partaking of Christ daily through the intake of Scripture and His Word? Are you constantly ingesting Him in your life? Some of you are more satisfied than others. You live more satisfied life than others. And here's the reason why. Because those people eat the bread of life more consistently. I just did a fast recently, not of food. I did a, a fast of alcohol. It wasn't a long one, about a month. And you know what? I couldn't, I, I thought about it so much. <laughs> it's like, man, I really would like that. I think about the, the amount of times I go without Christ, and I don't even think about it. I just get up and run into my day. No reading of the Word, no spending time, no communion with Jesus. I don't even think about it. But when I choose to, to limit myself from one of life's pleasures, it's like it's all I can think about. It's like I, I could unintentionally fast from Jesus for a period of time. But I, I can't intentionally fast from something that he's given without, like, everybody in the world knowing about it? What does that say? It says something about an adjustment that God wants to do in me and you and in all of us so that we are those who are truly satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. So Jesus is helping us to see our emptiness apart from him. And he's helping us to see how he satisfies the human heart. Justin Bieber, in one of his songs, which is pretty shocking to me when I listen to it, But he ends the song by saying, I've tried it all. But nothing can fix my damaged heart. Till I met you, Lord. You gave your life so that I wouldn't fall apart. And on the third day, 
you rose again. Can't remember exactly what he says, but, but beating death once and for all. Don't email me because I quoted Justin Bieber and you feel like I'm, I've lost it. <laughs> no one knows a man's heart but the man and God. And all I'm saying is that he seems to be wrestling with the longings of the human heart. And what he said in the end of that song is truth. I wonder if that truth has touched our hearts. Let's turn to God in song and in communion.